0: Our Father, I pray that it would never be said by anybody in this room that, behold, God was here and we didn't know it, because You are here and You are not silent. And Your voice is heard not only in the, the passing of the wind through the leaves and the grass through the majestic mountains that we see around us, but also Your voice is heard in this Word, this greatest and fullest of Your self-revelation. I pray that our ears would be attentive, that our hearts would be open, that we would not harden our hearts or close our ears. I pray that You would do a work of change in our hearts that only Your Word can bring about. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story in Genesis 3 tells us the beginning of human sin. A lot of people feel uncomfortable with that word, sin. Some think of it as a, a bothersome label that religious people stamp onto things that are fun. Like, oh, that's a sin. You can't do that. And others see the idea of, of sin as a way that maybe religious people want to keep their tight-fisted grip on power. So if, if I can call certain things sin, then if you do them, that's bad, and if you do bad things, that's why you need religious people. That's the way some people think about this whole category of sin. But without this concept of sin, we cannot understand ourselves. Someone has put it this way, within this gnarled chasm lie the twists and turns of our condition. People may not be able to understand sin or even accept sin, but without sin, we cannot understand ourselves. And if if you're sitting here and this whole word sin just kind of evokes bad thoughts in your mind, or just it feels judgmental, just be patient, okay? Just listen, because this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, will pinpoint exactly what sin is, and I think in examining it, it'll, it'll reveal this to us. It's recorded here, and we must pass over many interesting details, Any, many questions that we might want answered, such as, why did God allow the serpent to tempt Adam and Eve in the first place? How can a snake speak? Was Adam next to Eve or was he at some distance away? There's a lot of interesting things about this narrative that we must just pass over because our aim and the aim of Moses who wrote this is straightforward to tell us how humans plunge themselves into sin. And so we cannot scrutinize every leaf in this paradise lost, but we can at least look at the major landscape, landmarks. And we're going to learn two things. We're going to learn something about sin and something about grace. So, two simple points to this message. We're going to learn something about sin, about our sin, and something about God's grace. So, first of all, our sin. We're going to look at the allure of sin and the aftermath of sin. How humans entered into sin and then what happened as a result. The allure to sin. How did this all unfold? How is it that this couple romping in a perfect environment, having full access to virtually all the fruits and vegetables in the garden, how is it possible that they made a choice that would plunge them into sin? The answer to that puzzling question we begin to find in verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Notice the serpent did not come, announce his presence with alarms and sirens. It's not as if he said, I'm Satan and I'm here to destroy your soul. That's not the way sin works. It never does. It never announces itself in in full view of all the tragedy that's going to transpire. How How does the serpent begin? Not with a bold declaration of his rebellion against God. He begins with what? A question. A subtle question. And significantly, it is focused, it's a question, not just about anything, it's a question that focuses on the words of God. And he says, did God actually say? Do you get the subtlety here? It's almost as if he's asking piously surprised. Oh my goodness, things are rather strict around here. Did God really say that you couldn't have full access to just any tree in the garden? Is this really the kind of God that you have around here? It's insinuating, it's suggestive, it acts surprised. And this is how sin's allure begins. Sin, The allure to sin begins with raising questions about God's Word. But what do we know about God's word up to this point? Up to this point in Genesis, what has God's word been responsible for? God's word has been responsible for the existence of everything that there is. I mean, God spoke, and the sun and the moon and the stars came into existence. God spoke into existence the planets and the earth and, the, and the, the seas and the trees and everything there is. And up to this point, everything that God spoke into existence, God looks at and He says, it's very good. God's Word and everything that God created with this Word was pronounced as very good. And now the serpent has the audacity to bring up a question about the Word of God. And this is how sin always begins. This is always the allure to sin in your life, in my life. It always, always begins with a question about God's Word. How ironic it is that human beings, that Eve, whose very brain was created by the Word of God and is sustained by the Word of God, was using that brain to doubt the Word of God. And what is Eve's reply then? You see this here in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She should have stopped there. But what does Eve do instead? She adds something to God's Word. She tampers with God's Word. And this, again, is where sin begins. Sin begins with questioning God's Word and tampering with God's Word, you have these raising of doubts about God's Word. And then Eve begins to tamper, and here she opens up a chink in her armor. If she had just let God be God and let God's Word be God's Word and said, no, no, that settles it. This is what God has said, and I trust that because everything that God's Word has said up to this point has brought about good for me and for everything else, and that's, that's the end of the story. If that's all she had done, it could have been that she had been able to resist this temptation, but she tampered with the Word of God. She begins to waver. Now the stage is set. Now Satan has his foot in the door. It's just one more move for him to swing it right open. And you see how the serpent replies in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The allure to sin begins with doubting God's word. And it goes on to denying God's word. As it were, the serpent has slithered around Eve, and now he begins to squeeze. In direct contradiction to God's word, it began with delicate suspicions, and now she is ready to hear this brazen accusation. And what is he saying? He is discounting the consequences of sin. Again, what is the whole point of this? Of this? We're looking at the progress of sin. How sin can allure us into throwing away what is so precious. Where does it begin? It begins with our doubting of God's Word. It proceeds with denying God's Word, and it continues by discounting the consequences of God's Word. It's as if the serpent is saying, not only has God given you some outrageous expectation, but He's also backed it with an empty threat. But this is the way that sin always works we tend to minimize the consequences of sin and maximize the benefits of sin. And now the path to disobey God's command is nearly completely paved. You see that after Satan in verse 4 denies God's Word and discounts the consequences, he discharges his, his foulest bombardment By attacking the very character of God. And what does he do? He designates evil motives to God. See it right there. Verse 5 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's only a short step between denying God's word and doubting God's word and finding an evil motive to God's character. And, and here, is, here is the essence of what the serpent is saying. He's saying, like, why would God make such an unreasonable expectation on you? You can eat any a tree of a the a garden, just not this one. That, that's unreasonable, so says the serpent. And then why would he back it with an empty threat, which the serpent denies? There could be only one reason, and this is the reason that the serpent wants to plant into the mind of Eve. And this is the reason that God is holding something back from you that you need to be happy there is some good to be found outside the will of God. Now, that is the very essence of the allure to sin. We, we've got right at the heart of it. Remember I said earlier, if you feel uncomfortable about the idea of sin, about the language of sin, it's in the Bible and we should preach on it, but here is the very heart of it. It is the claim that of all the things God has given us for our good that proceed from Him, there's, there are some things that God is withholding from us that we need to experience good outside the will of God. The essence of sin is seeking good apart from God. This is what Jeremiah said in his prophecy in chapter 2 and verse 13, speaking for God who says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Here's a perfect picture for sin. People trying to satisfy their thirst on things that won't satisfy. People trying to extract satisfaction and pleasure from things that don't give it. Broken cisterns, empty cisterns that can hold no water, that is the essence of sin. Someone has put it this way, sin makes this profession, that there is not enough good in God to satisfy this soul. And that's the lie of sin. That God is not good enough to satisfy me. Whenever I sin, whenever you sin, that is always the lie that we are believing that there is not enough good in God to satisfy me when in fact God is the fountain of all good. There is no good that can be found apart from Him. And We find this microcosm of every single temptation that has echoed itself all throughout history right here in this incident in which, which Satan puts into the mind of Eve the subtle suspicion that God is withholding something good from her, that there is some good to be found outside the will of God, and that's what he does every single time he gets someone to sin. I think of one of the church fathers, Augustine. He recalls in his famous book, Confessions, he recalls a time when he was 16 years old when he met up with a group of friends one night to steal pears from a neighbor's tree. Now, granted, that was not the worst thing that Augustine did in his teenage years, but he, he, he focused on this one incident and, and began thinking, like, why did I do this? It was in the dim moonlight, and they sneaked into the neighbor's yard, and they just shook the tree, and all the juicy pears come thumping down. And they scooped up the pears by the armloads and just ran off to a pigsty, they took a few bites out of some pears, Augustine says, but he threw most of them right to the pigs, and the pigs just ate them up. And Augustine is thinking, why did I even do that? <laughs> I wasn't even hungry. I had better pears at home. He began thinking, the theft itself was a nothing, and for that reason I was the more miserable that in our sins, in this twisted and irrational and perverted way, we seek a pleasure, a good, a delight that can be only found in God. Here, I think, also is a key that unlocks one of the most curious features of human nature, and that is why we tend to seek a good reason for the evil things we do. Have you ever noticed that about people, about yourself? You're always trying to come up with, we're always trying to come up with some good reason for the evil things we do. Why do we even try to do that? If we're not seeking some good that cannot be found in that evil action. I recently heard an interview with three computer hackers. Their names were KRAD, Mr. Whereas, and Fred, ages 13, 15, and 16. No, they didn't bring down the Pentagon's computer system. Their crimes were relatively small, pirating software, copying CD-ROM games, and a phone scam in which they'd call people at random and try to weasel their credit card number out of them. It didn't usually work, by the way. And these kids were not poor. Two of them, two of them at least, lived in wealthy communities and attended one of the most expensive, prestigious private schools in the country. And the one who claimed to be poor, this was Fred, said that he would not steal anything that he had actually the money for. In fact, he said that if he had enough money, he would randomly leave $10 lying around the store that he robbed the most because, quote, I feel bad about what I've stolen. And Krad said, quote, I've made this vow to myself. If I'm in a good enough financial situation, I will repay everything I've ever done now. If I find myself making $2 million a year, I will send a $10,000 check to the company which I stole calling cards from. But why make these excuses? Like, why even give a reason? Why even think about this? And even, even the mass murderers throughout history claimed good reasons for their crimes, whether it be purging humanity of subhuman races or just following orders or simply the need for power or fame. Why? Because we cannot escape who we are, creatures who are seeking to find good, but seeking it in all the wrong places. That is the very essence of sin. It's giving into the lie that there is some good outside of God which I must break the will of God in order to achieve. And so it was that Eve gave into this as well. But this also explains why sin can be found in even the most pristine environments. This explains why the most religious people can be guilty of sin even in their religious practices. If you are seeking for satisfaction in religion itself, that itself is sin because it's a good apart from it's trying to find good apart from God. After all, it was to religious people that God said, these are the words of God from Amos chapter 5 verse 21. God said this, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Why? Because these people thought that these feasts and these religious assemblies were themselves a source of good and satisfaction, when in fact the only source of good is found in God. And so Eve too saw what she thought would be a good apart from God. Her mind doubted and her emotions craved and finally her will followed. And we see this in verse 6. Wisdom, God had already given them all the wisdom that they needed to govern the the world, the the garden that that He had put them in. But Eve was convinced there was something more she needed that God hadn't given her. And this is what we do all the time. We take good things like food or a job or romance or hobbies or technology power and money And we yank them from God's good purposes, and in so doing, we distort them into gluttony, or stress, or affairs, or laziness, or self-destruction, or domination, or greed. This is the allure to sin. Now, consider sin's aftermath. Someone might ask, why did such a small action result in such horrible consequences. Well, if you think about what this action meant, it wasn't just the eating of fruit, it was what the eating of fruit stood for. It was almost as if Adam and Eve, were, were by, by their eating of fruit, were saying this, yes, we've recently come into existence by the power of your word to God, and yes, we have been surrounded by everything good that we need. Yes, you have given us this royal commission to, to to multiply and to take ownership over the world for your glory. Yes, you've done all this for us, but we believe there's something that you're holding back from us, and we're doubting the goodness of what you said, and moreover, we are ascribing to you selfish motives because you are afraid that if we do this, then we're going to be like you, knowing good and evil. And so by eating this fruit, we're going to sign on the dotted line and declare our declaration, make our declaration of rebellion against you. That is what the eating of the fruit was. It was more than just this action of taking a fruit that God didn't want them to eat. It was affirming and ratifying every suspicion, every doubt, every rebellion that the serpent had put into their minds. And can you even guess at any other kind of consequence that would result from this? Severing themselves off from the source of life, of course the result is going to be death. Severing themselves from the very source of joy, of course the result is going to be misery severing themselves from from God's blessing, of course the result is going to be curse. And we see that happening. What do we see here in Genesis chapter 3? As soon as they do this, their eyes were open in verse 7. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the narrative goes on to explain the aftermath. Look at this first emotion. You know the first emotion that humans feel after they fall into sin? What is it? It is Fear. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Another emotion they felt was shame. I was naked, and I hid myself. They also were, they fell into self-deception. They actually thought the leaves of the trees could hide them. They should have known better. And blame-shifting. You see what Adam and Eve both did. After God asked him, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, What? The woman. Blame shifting. And all this, the fear, the shame, the self-deception, and the blame shifting, we don't do any of that anymore, do we? I mean, in Genesis 3, you find in miniature what blows up all over human history. Fear, yes, it's all around us. Shame, yes, we all feel deeply ashamed of who we are and what we've done. Self-deception, yes, we lie to ourselves all the time. Blame-shifting, we try to put the the fault on someone else. It's repeated in every home. It's repeated in nations. It's repeated in schools. It's repeated in government. All this, this hiding, this fear, the shame, the guilt, the blame-shifting, the self-deception, it happens over and over and over again. This is where it all started. And it all started when human beings decided, God, you're not my king, I'm going to be my own king. I'm going to find goodness in my own way. When God is the only source of goodness. And all satisfaction and goodness can be found in Him. But we find this aftermath of sin and fear, shame, self-deception, and blame shifting. This is a sad song. It is a sad story. The reason why I tell it and the reason why we need to know it is because it is into this gloom that the shaft of God's joyful light begins to shine. As we sang earlier in the service the song about God's grace, where sin abounded, grace, what? Did much more abound. And so we find that when God encounters human beings in their sin, right on the heels of their rebellion and failure, what comes is not the hammer of judgment that destroys the universe on account of human sins, but it is grace. Grace. It is God's grace. We learn not only about our sin, that we are at fault, that we have fallen because of our sin into shame and self-deception and hiding and fear and blame-shifting, but also God begins to show us His grace. And how does He show us His grace? It's all throughout the story. From the very beginning, after Adam sins, and he's hiding in the garden with Eve, and they think that they could be covered and concealed because of the leaves that God has made Get God, instead of calling out a siren of accusation, He asks a question. And what does He ask them? We find God's grace even in His seeking them. He says, Adam, where are you? I read somewhere that someone someone said in a book that God temporarily forgot that he could see through bushes. I think that is a horrible misunderstanding of what's going on there. God is not asking a question for information. He's asking the question because he's giving Adam an opportunity to respond. Adam, where are you? Where was Adam? Oh, sinking in his shame. Lost, fearful, and hiding. It's not that God needed to know where Adam was. Adam needed to know where Adam was. As I think about the different questions that God asks throughout Scripture, I think it is so true to His gracious nature that He asks us questions to stir our conscience and to help us realize where we are and who He is and what we need to do. You think about some of the questions when Job questioned God's ways, God asked Job a question, Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? When Moses protested and said, God, I can't speak, I can't lead your people, God said, Moses, who made your mouth? When the disciples, after the storm was stilled on the sea, they were just terrified Jesus asks them, Why were you so afraid? Have you no faith? When Jonah is furious that God shows mercy to the wicked city of Nineveh, instead of destroying them, God withholds His judgment on them. God says, Jonah, are you right to be angry? And my friend, to you this morning, you who are sinking in your shame, You who know the weight of guilt, you who know the crushing feeling of depression, sadness, running from God, no matter how far you are, no matter what you've done, put your name there. Where are you? Adam, where are you? That's God's grace. That's God's grace that He shows to human beings right after they sinned. God gives another opportunity. This is God's grace calling you, seeking you, but also God shows grace in sustaining us. Even in His words of judgment, God is sustaining human life. Notice what He says to to Adam and Eve. Yes, there is pain in childbearing, but she will bear children. The human race will continue. Yes, there'll be pain in eating the the, the fruit of the ground, but you will still eat of the fruit of the ground, He says to Adam. That's grace, grace in sustaining life instead of just snuffing it out. That's God's mercy and His undeserved favor. But also God shows His grace in a most unexpected way, and we find it in the darkest part of this entire passage. It's in the curse on the serpent. Isn't it true that we find grace where we least expect it? Look at verse 15. God is speaking not to the man, not to the woman, but to the serpent. It becomes, as we discover later on through Scripture, a symbol of Satan himself, the accuser. And God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we realize in this verse that God is speaking about more than just the serpent who whispered these sly suggestions into the ear of Eve. He's speaking about the devil himself who had instigated this fall. And moreover, he is speaking about the ultimate descendant, the ultimate seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ himself, who one day as he hung upon the cross absorbing in Himself the judgment for sin, crushed the head of the serpent so that we could live. We find grace not only in the fact that God is seeking His people, not only in the fact that God is sustaining, but we also see grace in the fact that God judges sin because when God judges sin, the judgment falls upon His own Son. God promises a coming deliverer. And it is Jesus. Jesus who took all the judgment we deserved. Jesus who lived the righteous life you and I could never live. Who died the sacrificial death that we could not die so that we can be embraced by Him. Mm -hmm. So, my friend, God is calling. Is God here? you know it? Is God speaking to you wherever you are? How will you tell if He's speaking to you? First of all, it's going to come through Christ, because it is in Christ and what He did that we see both the fullness of God's love and the fullness of God's holiness. And dying on the cross for our sins, God displays the fact that our sin, the stain of our sin is so deep and so dark that it took the death of the Son of God to make it right. But Jesus did die for our sin, and therein is the love of God displayed. Just bursting into full color when we see that Jesus died for me. God speaks. He does not comfort us in our sin. He confronts our sin because He is holy and we are not, and yet His voice is a call for us to repent. And then it is a voice that comforts us with His grace. Where sin increased, where sin multiplied, as it does in our lives, grace multiplies even more. My friend, there is a never-ending supply of grace. It washes over your soul like the waves crash ceaselessly on the beach. God's grace is so deep you can never sound its depths. It's so high you can never scale its height. You'll never exhaust God's grace because it's inexhaustible. No matter how far you've gone, God's grace will reach you. No matter how long you've, you've pushed Him off, God's grace will wait for you. And he invites you to come to him. He says, seek my face. And our heart says to him, your face, Lord, do I seek. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.